Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome back to the Avenus History Podcast. This episode is called... Wait, what am I calling it? I thought I was going to call it Useful Conspiracies. No, it's not Useful Conspiracies. What What is this thing called? A Scenario of Doom. That's what we're calling it. Sorry, I got to get on the game here. Okay, last time we talked about the wall and how General Conference President Robert H. Pearson assembled a list of church teachings. He had different groups study all of these things. He built the interpretation or the resolutions from these different committees. He built them together as like a great wall of Adventism against the invading Huns or, uh, well, just liberals. Okay. We are going to be shifting gears here in this episode. And before we begin, I feel like I should offer one of those rare disclaimers that the content of this episode might be troubling for some listeners. There are no scary sound effects, but I will be talking about the occult, which is a crucial part of the historical background of this episode. Of course, I'm not promoting the occult. I know in researching this episode and diving deep into these things, I had to come up for air a few times. I'm going to be honest with you. This was a hard thing to produce. I had to just walk away from the computer and clear my head and sing a song or two. You might need to do the same. So just hit pause if you feel that you need to. If you're not in a great headspace right now, I'd encourage you to go, well, check out our other fine podcasts and come back whenever you are kind of ready for this kind of content, okay? Okay, let's get into it. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the so-called Satanic Panic, a time when Christians were deeply afraid of what Satan was doing in the world. And as one author of this period, Anna Merlan, wrote, quote, It was a very fervid environment. Very credible-seeming people were saying, Occult ritual abuse is all around you. We've seen it, and the signs are visible if you know how to look for it. End quote. This was the age of playing records backwards to listen for hidden messages, of secret Jesuit plots, of animal mutilation and bizarre rituals, of serial killers and rock music, of cabals and conspiracies. Every year, it seemed, there was another bizarre story that seemed at least to suggest that demonic forces were actively working in the world here and now. At the height of the panic in the mid-1980s, even major news sources were asking what on earth is going on, like this clip from the American investigative show 2020. The apparent practice of Satanism, that's worship of the devil. Now, police have been skeptical when investigating these acts, just as we are in reporting them. But there is no question that something is going on out there, and that's sufficient reason for 2020 to look into it. Now, Adventists were not immune to the panic. It seemed to vindicate their great controversy theme, which, if you don't know, is a belief that there was a cosmic war going on between Christ and Satan. And now, at the end of time, the angels and demons doing battle seem to be pressing right up to the veil of the visible. You didn't have to have spiritual supervision to see it. It was on the nightly news. Just weird stuff that was happening. Now, the term satanic panic is usually applied to this period of the 1980s. But the panic was simply the culmination of a longer period of growing alarm over the perceived rise of Satan's brand in the world. Something that I'm going to call in this episode 
The Satan Show, for reasons that will be clear as we go. Now, I'm not going to call this episode The Satan Show, however, because I think Satan is a loser, and I don't feel like using the title Satan in the title of this show, so I have come up with a different title, though if you're listening to this episode, I imagine you figured that out, so cool. Okay, so why do this episode then? Well, our recent episodes have focused on connecting our recent past with our present to show how things came to be, and this episode is no exception to that. After all, one American news source ran the headline, quote, Why Satanic Panic Never Really Ended. The collective fears that consumed the U.S. in the 1980s and 90s are still alive and well, end quote. And I think you'll see exactly what I mean by the time we get to the end of this episode. Well, as good a place of any is to start at that famous issue of Time magazine, the one with the black cover, with the red words on it, echoing Nietzsche, which asked, Is God dead? And to make matters more provocative for Christians, Time released the issue on Good Friday. With that question, Time staked out the fault line that was, that was emerging in America at the time. Now, in hindsight, given the thousands of furious letters that followed and the decades of sermons aimed at this issue, we might expect that the whole issue of Time magazine was dedicated to this explosive proposition. It wasn't. Get this. You had to get to page 82 to read the cover story. So the cover says, is God dead? And you know, it's going to work a bunch of people up. Then you had to flip to page 82 before you could follow up on that question, which is, uh, I don't know if that's genius marketing or terrible marketing. I, I, I don't know. But, you know, that is the issue of time, perhaps more than any other that has stuck with people. Well, like I said, time was staking out a fault line in America. They didn't start this. They were just noticing what was happening in America. And once you got to the to page 82 and could read the cover story, well, the goal, obvious, of the article was to, was to provoke a conversation around the thesis that we might not need God anymore. Now, certain Adventist leaders interpreted Time's question as the natural and expected conclusion of decades of modernist influences. Arthur Maxwell put it, quote, it began with doubts about the Genesis stories of creation and the flood and proceeded to the relegation of the entire Old Testament to myth and folklore. Then the New Testament was likewise dissected, with the historicity of Christ's miracles being questioned, the four Gospels being examined for errors, and Revelation being dismissed as pure fantasy. End quote. So the God is dead idea was the terminus of a slippery slope that people have been sliding on for decades now. And I think Maxwell's view of things would have been persuasive to Adventists back then, right? You, you start by doubting creation, you doubt the flood, you throw the whole Old Testament as, as this kind of, like, you know, s primitive superstitious document into the trash. And then it's like, well, did Jesus' miracles even have? You know, he's identifying this. This is a slippery slope. It started a long time ago. So after you do all of that work on the Bible... It's natural that people are asking, is God dead? Do we even need him anymore? Well, let's let that sit aside and marinate for a little bit and switch gears here. Just before the infamous issue of Time emerged, the Beatles released their album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Whew. The album art featured 
cut out images of some 70 people, including one Aleister Crowley, an eccentric showman and a cultist who had died a generation ago. To the extent that anyone even knows who Aleister Crowley is these days, he's often remembered as a Satanist, and while he did use satanic imagery to promote his homemade religion, he didn't actually believe Satan existed. Still, the very presence of Crowley on the Beatles' album confirmed the link between Satan and rock music for many Christians. I mean, why else would you want to be seen with this guy? John Lennon would later quote Crowley's most famous dictum, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. That was Crowley's, I guess, his version of the Ten Commandments. In his own words, Lennon said that that dictum best captured what the Beatles were about. Do whatever you want, just don't hurt other people. That's that's it. Now, the Beatles' rivals, the Rolling Stones, released their next album months after the Beatles. It was called Their Satanic Majesty's Request. Some countries refused to release the album under that title for understandable reasons, perhaps. The cover for the album ended up looking a bit like the Beatles' latest album, but that was only after the original idea, that is, putting putting Mick Jagger naked on a cross was ultimately shot down for reasons I guess none of us will be able to understand. Right? Why would you not want to have that as your album? The next year, in 1968, a new group was formed, Led Zeppelin. Zeppelin's Jimmy Page boasted of his experience with the occult, and it was Zeppelin's song, Stairway to Heaven, that contained messages to Satan if you played it backwards. Which, look, in case you're curious, it's all gibberish. <laughs> When you play when you play words backwards. But I, I guess once you're primed to listen for a certain message, like you're you're listening for some kind of satanic content, you can hear anything. You can hear anything if you're primed to hear it. Alright? And and so that's Zeppelin, that's the Stones, that's the Beatles, and, and you can't even like have this discussion about bands in this age, bands in the occult, without talking about Black Sabbath, which was a band that perhaps did did more than anyone else to promote the occult as a part of their brand. Now, I could go on and on, but it should be understood that these rock bands thrived on scandalizing your mom and dad. That's part of what made them cool at the time. They were tapping into teenage rebellion. But it was an act, for, at least for Vincent Fernier, who took on the stage name Alice Cooper. Fernier claimed that a Ouija board chose the name Alice Cooper for his band, but he could also be found hanging out with Bob Hope at celebrity golf tournaments, so you're not exactly burnishing your uh, occult image there, are you? At the same time, movies were emerging in the late 60s that picked up on the same satanic theme. Rosemary's Baby was perhaps one of the most famous early examples of this, and it depicted a young couple moving next door to some elderly Satan worshippers. Let's just say it's not a romantic comedy. What was truly scary, I think, about Rosemary's Baby was that the Satan-worshipping neighbors were just some sweet-looking old people, like the kind that might bake you cookies. And at one point in the original book, one of those older neighbors says, God is dead. You see, everything is connected, right? Time Magazine, Rosemary's Baby, it's all connected. Anton LaVey, an actual Satanist, called Rosemary's Baby, quote, the best paid commercial for Satanism since the Inquisition, end quote. The 70s also gave us The Exorcist, and in literature, the works of Stephen King, the man who showed that you could make a writing career out of the occult. His first hit, Carrie, 
was an obvious own version of the Exorcist. I'd already mentioned the Ouija board, then there was also tarot cards, which purported to show you the future. Well, to sum it up, the bizarre and little-known occult writings were picked up and popularized by countercultural figures who idealized Satan as the ultimate countercultural figure, even if many of them personally didn't actually believe in Satan. I mean, don't get me wrong, they had a lot of beliefs that were not Christian. That's the nicest non-judgmental way of saying it. But Satan was, a, was, was useful to the brand. He was useful to, to their image that they were trying to, to portray. It was a show. That doesn't mean it was a harmless show. We haven't even talked about the Manson murders or various suicides linked to rock music and drugs and all of this. Right? Doesn't mean it was a harmless show. Doesn't mean they didn't believe a lot of messed up things. But very, very clearly, these bands, some movies, authors, whatever, they, they hyped this up for their own gain. But in order to truly understand The Satan Show, I think you should understand Go Ask Alice. Go Ask Alice was a book published anonymously in 1971, purporting to be the diary of a teenage girl who got sucked into drug culture and eventually died. I mean, it was a, it's a really tragic tale. Alice tries to get clean at the end, but her friend circle emerges yet again and pulls her back down, and this time it's too late and it's too much. The raw, messy account of young Alice shook people. An editor of the Avenist Australasian Record reviewed Go Ask Alice, calling it a devastating revelation. Alice, the editor wrote, quote, is an ordinary teenager who is growing up in a respectable upper-middle-class American home, end quote. Now that, I think, captured where so much of this fear was coming from. This could happen to any of us, even good church girls, even boys in Sabbath school. During the Satan show, parents struggled to feel that they could actually protect and guide their children from all of these influences that were all around and all pulling them in the same wrong direction. Now, the record's review of Go Ask Alice notes, of course, that the names in the book have been changed. Quote, even the name of its youthful author has been withheld, end quote. In other words, it was published anonymously. We don't know who wrote it, what young person wrote it. Well, it turned out that something more than changing names had gone on here. The author wasn't youthful. She was a Mormon housewife in Utah named Beatrice Sparks. Since her publisher was refusing to give her public credit for Go Ask Alice and the millions of copies that were sold, Sparks decided to write another. And this time, Sparks got her hands on a real journal of a real boy who had committed suicide like Alice. Now, the parents had asked Beatrice Sparks to tell this young man's story. And so Sparks used a couple of dozen pages from the young man's journal and then invented hundreds more. All to make the young man look like a deviant who was into devil worship. At one point in a satanic ritual, this kid apparently killed a cat, in Sparks' version, not in reality. Sparks wrote lines in the young man's journal calling his mother a fat pig, things he never wrote and seemed purely designed to hurt the grieving mother who had only turned to Sparks to tell her son's story. What this grieving mother got from Sparks was a novel that cruelly capitalized on her grief. But many Christians didn't know what Beatrix Sparks had done. They had only heard her warning the world about drugs and demons, a message many Christians were all too eager to support. 
And this was the problem. It was difficult, impossible to tell what was true. Some local Utah grad students dug into Beatrice Sparks' latest book and found a number of students who would attest that, yes, the occult was alive and well in schools. Everybody had heard of something. Everybody had a friend who was into it. Everybody had somebody who had experimented with it. Everybody had heard that they were doing human sacrifice the next town over. It was common knowledge, and yet so very little actual proof. So other books followed. Michelle Remembers, a Canadian book. Read like exorcist porn, one researcher wrote. Under hypnosis by her psychiatrist, Michelle, apparently remembered being in the control of Satan worshippers for a year until Jesus personally appeared and rescued her. That psychiatrist, by the way, also ended up grooming this woman, Michelle, to leave her then-husband for him. And it turns out Michelle hadn't been abducted by Satanists for a year. She'd been in school, and there were school records, attendance records, grades, homework, to show that she had been doing her schoolwork. But the psychiatrist and his patient, Michelle, made hundreds of thousands of dollars off of the book up front. And Michelle would later appear on the Oprah Winfrey show. So it's got to be true, right? But put yourself in someone's shoes back then. How could you know that these books are fake? How could you know? Book after book was being published, testimony after testimony. The Satan show was so much bigger than this band or that band or this book or that book. The evidence just seemed to be everywhere. Everybody had a story to share about what the Satanists have done to them or to somebody that they knew. Seemingly overnight, we went from worrying that the kids might stay out past nine to worrying that they might start doing drugs, be murdered, join a new age cult, or sing songs to Satan. Like, what was going on in our world? Everything was spinning out of control. Like, like just what happened? How do we get a handle on this? How, how do we get a grip on this spinning, 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 spinning world? What's up? What's down? Where's a horizon that we can look at to regain our balance? I want you just to put yourself in the shoes of parents back then. How, how, do you, how do you protect your kids? How do you make sense of any of this? How do you react in, I, I guess, a, a, a measured and careful way when, when you really don't have any way of telling whether something is true or not? It makes sense that a lot of people would just react to this by assuming it was true. Because it was safer to assume that it was true and steer clear of rock music and steer clear of books and steer clear of public schools and just stay out of society. Stay disengaged from all of this. And, and, and if you could, hide your kids from going outside. Now, bands like the Rolling Stones may have kindled the rumors to build their bad boy image. But people like Beatrice Sparks threw gasoline on the fire purely for their own gain, and others followed. Now, you might be wondering, Matthew, we are, well, I don't know, almost 20 minutes into this episode. There's surprisingly very little avenous history here. Okay? History? Yes, there is history, but not particularly Adventist. And, and you're right, I'm, I'm kind of getting to that. Just hang on for a few more minutes, and it'll become a lot clearer. Like I said, others followed Beatrice Sparks, like Mike Warnke. Mike's book, The Satan Seller, 
claimed to be his memoir of his time in a satanic cult. And as you might expect, by this point, none of Mike's many friends from college ever remember him belonging to some dark cult. And when he asked them to sign an affidavit affirming that what he wrote was true, they laughed at him. Now, Mike could handle laughing. He was a Christian comedian. And in the 70s, he was at the top of his game making boatloads of money. I mean, boatloads of money. I don't know if that's an official American uh, measurement. You know, we'll do, <laughs> the joke is that Americans will measure things by anything other than the metric system. So <laughs> boatloads, carloads, whatever. Uh, but he was making a lot of money. He also cheated on his wives, plural. He cheated on his first wife with the woman who became his second wife. He cheated on his second wife with the woman. Uh, you get the idea. And he occasionally threatened to kill them and threw them into walls and things like that. Very nice guy. Mike was one of the experts on Satanism, by the way, in that 2020 episode that I played a clip of earlier. Next up was a man named John Todd. Now, John Todd emerged in the late 1970s with an explanation of what was going on. He claimed to have been a former Satanist and a member of the Illuminati who escaped to expose what they were doing. And at last, here is a man who wasn't just interested in spreading rumors. He had solutions. Todd's story basically went like this. Get ready. He was in the U.S. Army because the, uh, the witches had sent him to the U.S. Army. He killed an officer his former commanding officer in Germany, went to jail. But because he was a high-ranking Satanist, some Illuminati men showed up, including a U.S. senator, and got him out of jail, conveniently also expunging his record at the Pentagon so no evidence of him murdering his commanding officer exists. Todd eventually became a Christian and took to warning Christians about the Illuminati and Satanism. Now, Todd was not quite as good as Mike Warnke in fooling Christians, but what he did do was show that Satanism wasn't just something kids were messing around with in high school. It was a grand global conspiracy of the world's elites against Christians. Now, you can imagine how Avenus heard that message. They're coming for us, specifically. And what's more, Todd claimed that the Illuminati were, were behind the, the new Christian contemporary music industry, stoking suspicions that had already existed, right? Everything is a conspiracy against us. Don't buy it. Well, Avenus didn't buy everything John Todd was selling. He had said, for instance, that every Christian needed to own a 12-gauge shotgun, a Remington 870, if you could get it, to prepare for the day when anarchy breaks out in America, this, this revolution when the Illuminati is going to try to take over. And so, you know, you're going to need to defend your family. The demons, he said, would direct mobs of their followers to your door. Well, that didn't meet Adventist expectations of the end. God's people weren't called to a violent victory. But Todd did find support, powerful support, in larger conservative churches. Cassette tapes of his talks spread like wildfire. Part of Todd's appeal was his masculine Christianity. You better get ready for the mobs coming to your door, he told one group of Christians. Quote, while you're standing there rebuking them and expecting them to fall over, I'll be using a shotgun, end quote. Well, even if one rejected the anticipation of violence, which Avenus did, Todd's aggressive, no-nonsense, John Wayne approach to religion was a call to arms for evangelical men. I mean, John Todd's name was John Wayne Todd, after all. That statement about you better get ready made rebuking seem like a, a, a feminine, passive, ineffective way to respond to the devil. 
What the church needed was action in force to stop sitting on their hands and man up. Never mind the fact that Jesus went around rebuking demons and never once raised his fists against anyone, and I think we'd all agree Jesus did a pretty good job. Don Todd connected with Jack Chick, a fundamentalist cartoonist, best known for his famous Chick tracks. Chick put his machine to work for John Todd, amplifying his story as a former high-ranking Illuminati member who was preaching a global conspiracy and a call to arms for Christians. John Todd's message caused tension in the Adventist church between pastors and members. Uh, a member of the faculty at an Adventist academy felt the need to introduce John Todd's ideas to the students, right? We should be talking about these things, even if many pastors opposed it. She recognized that, yes, John Todd says some things that are impossible to prove, but she added, quote, they shouldn't be so hard to believe if we've read our Bibles and the great controversy, end quote. In other words, John Todd's view of the end is close enough to Adventism to take it by faith. This academy faculty member also said that Adventist pastors should stop opposing John Todd. Quote, to come to think of it, I guess I'm more worried over those ministers than I am over John Todd. End quote. What a thing to say. I'm more worried over those Adventist ministers and their influence in the church than I am over John Todd. A man, by the way, who in, in several of these letters by Adventist laymen, they weren't even sure if he was a Christian. But because of the things he was saying, there was a level of trust between John Todd and these Adventist members that existed even, that was greater than the trust they had for their own pastors. Oh, boy. A woman in California also wrote that the young people who listened to John Todd gave up their rock music, their movies, their jewelry, and yet our ministers are telling these young people not to listen to John Todd. So what's, what's going to happen with that? Are they just going to say, oh, I guess I'll go back to my rock music and movies and jewelry? This woman noted that John Todd says, yes, he says some sensationalist things, but you know what? Alcoholics Anonymous shows, quote, some pretty sensational films and case histories to influence people to quit. We also need strong measures to show the effects of the devil's tactics, end quote. And that was it, wasn't it? These two women weren't bothered by the details of John Todd's message, you know, whether it was actually true or not. Don't get fixated on his actual claims. Judge John Todd by the overall effect his message has. Does it help people shape up and get ready for Jesus to come or not? What's rather shocking is this woman, like others, says she doesn't know whether John Todd was even a Christian. Nevertheless, she was confident that he was somebody whom God was using. In this California woman's letter, we also detect that appeal which John Todd had. She wrote, quote, on the whole, we are a rather naive, protected group of people. We have trained ourselves and our children to refrain from the world to such an extent that we are not aware of what is in the world, end quote. As I've said, John Todd had that magical ability to make you feel asleep, passive, ignorant, and yes, naive. And because nobody likes to feel that way, it was easy to accept his call to action. It was easy to be like, yeah, man, we don't know what's going on. And now he's telling us the truth. So now we know what's going on. It's almost Gnostic in this way that we're searching for the secret knowledge. And once we have it, we feel like we are masters of our world once more. 
Now, a man in California also wrote defending John Todd, and again, he wasn't saying that everything John Todd said was true, but that the effect of Todd's tapes had on the soul was greater than the effect of most Adventist preachers. Throughout these letters, by the way, there's a disappointment with the Adventist ministry. When Adventist leaders could preach like John Todd, this man in California wrote, then the end would come. What really tweaked these Adventist members was the effort of one professor at Southern Missionary College, now Southern Adventist University, to discredit John Todd. Using a device called a psychological stress evaluator, Renee Neuerbergen analyzed some of Todd's talks and discovered that he was lying about his biggest claims. No, he hadn't been the victim of like dozens of assassination attempts. No, he had never been involved in witchcraft, etc., etc. Now, this psychological stress evaluator, Neuerbergen said, was, had been in use by 300 police departments across America. So that must mean it's scientific, right? But it irked the laity that a man's spiritual claims were being evaluated by a machine and not by a study of the Bible. The Baltimore Sun saw in Todd's tales what they called the ultimate conspiracy. It tied anti-Semitism together with the occult and the Illuminati and all of the power brokers of the world. In late 1978, Todd said he heard from someone in the CIA that the entire agency was out to kill him. The witches had put a bounty on his head as well. Now that was the price to be paid for speaking the truth and saying that Jimmy Carter was the Antichrist, as Todd had done. The one pastor in Baltimore who attended a Todd meeting said, quote, he called us a bunch of wishy-washy, mealy-mouthed Christians. He said, I couldn't live for very long with you kind of people. In my opinion, he's a megalomaniac, but he exerts an almost hypnotic leadership. But people listen. Because everybody knows that something's going on in our country. A lot of folks are not getting answers that make sense to them. All those investigations, there's very little credibility left in government. And so this guy comes along and he puts together a package that, at first hearing, makes sense. Eureka! We found it! End quote. Those words could have been written yesterday, couldn't they? No trust in the government. People not satisfied with the answers their leaders are giving. A deeply flawed but charismatic leader who shows up to lead us in the way forward. But he does so by destroying your trust in everything else. Bands like Led Zeppelin and The Stones hyped up the Satan show for their own gain. But at least it was transparent about what they were after. They spread fear in exchange for fame and fortune. But Beatrice Sparks, Mike Warnke, and John Todd were different. They leveraged that same fear to pose as prophets and saviors. When in fact, they weren't. Yet even as these Adventist church members were laying into their leaders for daring to check John Todd, other Christians were finally breaking Todd's spell. See what I did there? One of Todd's major supporters, the pastor of Faith Baptist Church in Los Angeles, denounced him and removed his name from membership after Todd was caught on tape teaching witchcraft. The pastor also chafed because he heard Todd claiming that certain Baptist ministers, including himself, had to go armed 24 hours a day because of threats on their life. This was a sensationalist claim by John Todd. And this pastor, as he heard it, he's like, I don't go around armed all the time. I don't know of these threats against my life. And so he confronted Todd about this. And Todd said, as he often did, that he was tired and misspoke. But those moments of being tired and misspeaking kept piling up. And Faith Baptist had enough. 
they removed him from membership. So had Christianity Today. I mean, they didn't remove him from membership, but they had had enough. In 1979, editorial began with this line, quote, It is an embarrassment to have to write about the John Todd phenomenon, end quote. The editorial then went on, quote, considerable evidence suggests Todd to be a sick man who must be helped before someone is shot to death. He has exploited and abused those who have believed in him. What is needed is for people to stop believing in him so that he can be helped, end quote. One Adventist historian, Walter Ott, appreciated this article and wrote to Christianity Today to thank them. Ott then wrote something I found and continue to find deeply profound. Quote, I share your dismay that so many Christian people are vulnerable to this kind of sensationalism. I shouldn't wonder if some might become quite upset with you for trying to take from them a scenario of doom to which they have become attached. But do not far too many members of the flock want or need to be kept frightened and a certain number of shepherds find it useful to keep them that way? End quote. Uh, was asking, why are so many Christians vulnerable to this kind of sensationalism? And he expected that many people reading Christianity Today's articles on John Todd, their takedown of John Todd, would become upset with them. Uh, would know. He had seen this play out in the Adventist church where members were upset with their leaders over this very issue. And Ut had a theory of why those members couldn't see the situation clearly. They had become attached, in his words, to a scenario of doom. These members, Ut said, wanted or needed to be kept frightened. And there were pastors who, he says, Find it useful to keep them that way. Holy cow. Can we just talk about this statement for like 10 more minutes? Can we unpack it? Can you all come over to my place and let's just sit around and, and figure out the implications of what Ut wrote here? Ah, alas, we can't. We got to move on with the episode. But man, I would love to, I would love to discuss this further. John Todd would eventually go to jail for rape. I was thinking, man, I should give these people closure. What happened to John Todd? And then when I wrote that line, I'm like, I don't think this is going to make anyone feel like they have closure. This is worse. <laughs> After, uh, I, I think he was let out of prison a little bit early for psychological uh, issues. He was placed in a psychiatric facility and died in 2007. And there had been signs of his interest in underage girls for a long time long before he became popular in this Christian circuit for just a couple of years, before flaming out. But good Christians had brushed off these rumors as attempts to discredit his message. And I think there's another conversation to be had here. You can blame the Rolling Stones. You can blame the Beatles. You can blame Led Zeppelin for all this occult stuff. But who can Christians blame for Mike Warnke and John Todd? Churches platformed these people, enriched these people, believed these people, turned on their own leaders who opposed these people, 
turned on them because they wanted to believe that the message was true. And so Mike Warnke could keep on having affairs and abusing women because nobody, I mean, look, this was, it, it may not have been public knowledge, but Christian leaders knew what he was doing. At one point, Walter Martin, who we talked about with the QOD stuff, Walter Martin visited Mike Warnke. And I don't know if Walter Martin was aware of everything going on, but he knew that Mike's marriage was in trouble, and he knew that his marriage was in trouble in part because he was cheating on his wife. Walter Martin talked with him, but nobody said anything publicly. Nobody made any move who had any kind of power that would have stopped these people from being platformed, from spreading their message, from carrying on like they had before. And I think that's, that's really what is so tragic about this. People so wanted to believe the message that they enabled a dysfunctional, dishonest, and at times abusive messengers. After all, King David wasn't perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect, right? Have you heard that before? And so the group of people who most claimed to see what's going on, what's really going on, what Satan is doing in the world, we now see it so clearly. We're also enabling people who were committing grievous sins all in the name of exposing the devil. Now, Mike Warnke wasn't the only one. Of course, John Todd wasn't the only one. There were others besides, and one you may have heard of. His name is Alberto Rivera. He claimed to be an ex-Jesuit who had a vast information about a global Jesuit conspiracy. Jack Chick also platformed Rivera like he had done for John Todd. Avenus Evangelist, to this day, still cite Alberto Rivera as an authority on these things. Some good investigative work by our friend Kevin Burton has thoroughly dismantled Rivera's credibility, just like John Todd's credibility was shattered, just like Mike Warnke's credibility was shattered, just like in a in a in a maybe in a different way, Beatrice Sparks' credibility was shattered. Like these people were predators. They may have believed their own stuff. They may have taken their own product, so to speak, and believed and truly believed that what they were doing was right, but they were predators and plagues on good Christians. And eventually it would all come out. But on the Alberto Rivera thing, I'm not going to spend much more time talking about him because I think you've already got the idea of what's going on. You've got the formula. These guys rise up. A lot of people listen to them. They, they kick up a lot of dust. They start a lot of fires. And then sooner or later, people find out what they're really up to. And in this case, um, our good friend Kevin Burton 
has uh, has has done fantastic work in seeing through Rivera. He has unearthed a ton of FBI files on Rivera, and Kevin and I we're going to go through all of that in a future episode of Avenus History Extra. That's going to be dedicated to Alberto Rivera. So I'm not going to talk about him a whole lot here. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna just zoom in on his life and what Kevin's found, and um, and all of that in a uh, in relatively near future on Alberto Rivera. So if you haven't signed up for Avenus History Extra yet, here's my here's my plug. What are you waiting for? You can do it on our website avenushistorypodcast.org or by becoming a patron on Patreon.org/slash History Podcast. Sign up for any level. It's like five bucks a month, and you can get access to Avenus History Extra, where we do some. Uh, we have a lot of fun episodes. We're building up a good library there. Now, now, by the way, with this new deal between Spotify and Patreon, you can actually listen to. I, I started the, not really a new podcast, but kind of a new podcast. That uh, it's calling it the Patreon Cast or the Patron Cast. And basically, I'm going to start uploading episodes from all of the podcasts. Ellen White Podcast, Avenus Pilgrimage, Avenus History Podcast, Avenus History Extra. All of them are going into the Patreon cast. And the link is on Spotify, so you can just listen to all of them whenever they come out. So it's like one podcast to rule them all. Anyways, you can you can head over to uh, to Patreon to get access to that if, that's a, if that appeals to you. If that's how you want to listen. And you don't want to be subscribed to four different podcasts. Um, that's a simple solution. So... Head on over to Patreon or head on over to the AvenusHistoryPodcast.org website for that. Anyways, at the uh, 2001 North American Division year-end meeting, it's kind of like the NAD's version of the GC's annual council. At the 2001 year-end meeting, the Review and Herald Publishing Association declared that they had a new sharing book that was ready. As the president of the Review and Herald told those at year-end meeting, this sharing book, quote, deals with the subject matter of the Harry Potter books, which introduced children to the occult, end quote. Of course, in many avenue circles, it was axiomatic that Harry Potter encouraged the occult. Of course it did. When you understand all that happened during the Satan show of the late 1960s through the 1980s, the reaction to Harry Potter in the 2000s makes a lot more sense. The fear of secrets, of spiritual saboteurs, of cabals and conspiracies still runs deep. So does the desire for someone to explain what's going on in the world because it's a mess. And what else makes sense in light of the Satan show? The lack of trust in church leaders. The feeling that, that the shepherds and the sheep are at odds with each other. That the, that the leaders of the church are keeping something from us. That every time we light a little fire of revival, there's a church leader or pastor or somebody who comes and stamps it out course, the church leader's perspective, the, the sheep keep lighting fires, uh, keep lighting the barn on fire and calling it a revival. And all of this makes more sense because of the Satan show. When you understand this background, so much of, of what Christians in general and Adventists in particular are, are going through, the way they handle certain topics, it, it makes more sense. You have examples, I would, I would say Ut was right on this part, of the sheep still being afraid and of there being certain shepherds who want to keep them that way. Even though there aren't a whole lot of Avenus in this episode of the Avenus History Podcast, I hope it offered a little bit more context about why things are the way that they are. 
about what Avenus went through a couple of generations ago when their world was turned upside down by the Satan show. Now, I don't know if this is a, a theologically correct, but we might just say it scared the hell out of them. And even now, 50 years later, as I do this episode, I don't like reading about this dark stuff either. I mean, there was so much here I didn't share. Just so many examples of, of crazy occult stuff. I, I tried to steer clear of the Manson murders and things like that because I just I don't want it to get too dark. I don't like reading about that stuff. And on a personal level, I think there are some things human beings shouldn't screw around with. And they did. And Christians have been scared and have turned on each other because they're scared for the last 50 years as a result. And more than that, I keep thinking of Walter Utt's words. Some people want or need to live in fear, and some leaders want to keep it that way. I, I just I keep thinking about that quote and, and trying to trying to parse through it. How true is this? If it's true, why is it true? What are some examples of this? Boy, heaven help us. There. Okay. We've got some things to talk about. So go and find somebody else who listened to this episode. Share it with them. Say, hey, listen to this. And I want to talk about it with you afterwards. And once you guys have talked it out, once you've gathered some thoughts, tell me what you think. Get on the website. Send us a message. You can send us an email to AdventistHistoryPodcast at gmail.org. Get on Facebook or Instagram and leave some comments underneath the post. Let me know what you think. I want to hear from you guys, okay? All right. Thanks for listening. Go get some air. We'll talk again soon. All right, my friends. Welcome back to the Avenus History Podcast. This is your ish. Wait, it's not issue. This is a podcast, not a magazine. Come on, Matthew. Get it together. <laughs> Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Avenus History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>